Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. I hope you're having a wonderful Easter season. We have a great show for you today, as we do each week. And again, thank you for joining us again this week uh, to all our regular listeners. My co-host Ashley McGuire joins me at the bottom of the hour with some enlightening takes on the FBI's memo about investigating Catholics. What are the First Amendment uh, concerns that we should have here? Ashley has been following this story that much of the media is ignoring, but we're going to get her views on that. We're excited also to talk to Chloe Cole about the very important topic of transgenderism and its effects on young people. She is a very brave young woman who went down the very ugly road of gender medicine. I hate to call it medicine, but the way uh, in the way it applies to children, she was very young when she had her puberty blocked, cross-sex hormones administered, even a mastectomy. She's going to tell us all about that. She's only 18 as we speak. It's a it's a powerful story from a very powerful and a vulnerable source, and I. I'm really glad that, I'm really honored that, that she's willing to talk to, to us about it here at Conversations with Consequences. Welcome to the show, Chloe. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Chloe, you are only 18. Myself and many of our listeners can remember back when we were 18, and we were not doing the kinds of things that you are doing. You you are very bravely going about the world and uh, telling your story and, and entering into situations which I'm sure are very difficult, putting yourself in the spotlight, answering aggressive questions and being very, very brave. Where do you find the strength for, for what what you are doing? I think the biggest thing motivating me is just knowing that there's more there's more young people and especially young girls and boys who are out there struggling with the same thing that I am and they don't really have Many of them don't really have a voice and they're not able to speak out for themselves. And I was in that situation once. And it's not something that I wish on anybody else. So you feel that you are sort of on the leading edge of a group of of a group of young people who have been ill served by their by society, by the medical profession? Right. And you're willing to you're willing to to do what most of us are not willing to do, which is to 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 let ourselves be be in that leadership group, right? In in a in a situation which is very uh, contentious. Yeah, I really feel strongly called to to speak on the subject after after going through what I have and speaking to to other people who have been. And now, many of our listeners uh, may know about may know your story more or less, but maybe you want to can you share with us um, a sketch of how you came to this point in your life, all the different things that happened. Yeah, so I am a detransitioner, meaning that I was somebody who went through the process of medically and socially transitioning to the opposite sex, and then I went back on my decision. And this all happened while I was still a kid. I started socially transitioning at 12, meaning that I changed my name in the way that I presented and dressed myself. And then I was medicalized at 13 with uh, puberty blockers or Lupron and testosterone. And at 15, 
I had a double mastectomy and just a year afterward when I was 16 was when I had stopped transitioning. Oh my gosh, you were extremely young at 12 to be um, making these decisions. What, let, let me ask you, do you, this decision, where did it come from? Were you uh, influenced by your peer group or what you were seeing on the internet? Yeah, for me, it was, I had struggles relating to, to being a girl growing up, but it wasn't until I started using social media that I was introduced to the idea that I could be a boy, that I didn't have to be a girl. And, and so, there were a lot of things that I think made me vulnerable to that, being that I started puberty at a pretty young age. And so my breasts started developing when I was only around eight or nine. And this was really uncomfortable. I would hear comments about it all the time from my peers. And I became really conscious of my body mm -hmm. at a very young age. And I started to develop body image issues. I often felt like I wasn't enough of a woman and that I would never compare to, to other girls and women and that I would be better off as a boy. I was also, um, I had a previous diagnosis of, of ADHD, but I, I strongly believe that I'm actually on the spectrum. And so you found, you found the onset of puberty very disturbing, which I'm not, I'm not uh, surprised. I mean, I'm a woman and I went through puberty and I found it very disturbing. When little girls start, when their bodies start to change, they become extremely self-conscious. And it sounds like that happened to you. I don't know if you agree with me, but our culture doesn't present to us images of, of womanhood, of young womanhood that are comfortable for our eyes, right? There are things that we no, think no, no. we can achieve or that we even we want to achieve. Yeah, that was another thing that really complicated this. I already had a habit of constantly comparing myself to my older sisters and female relatives and my friends. But I started using a phone when I was 11 and I started using social media and apps like Instagram because that's what everybody else my age was doing. Mm -hmm. And I... On Instagram, I saw a lot of images of young women that were often very, very sexual in nature and a lot of discussion having to do, do with that, that I don't think that anybody that age should, should be exposed to that. I mean, this is content that is already difficult for, for adults to digest. And for me, it definitely was. And it really did complicate my view of what being a woman was actually supposed to be like. And even the stuff that I would hear about, about womanhood from other women and girls was always very negative. It was always about the negatives, about the pain of menstruation and childbirth and pregnancy and menopause. And nobody ever talked about the good things that, that came with it. Mm -hmm. I didn't want... It was it was hard to imagine myself growing into a woman. Do you think that the, that the heavily... Uh, sexualized culture that is reflected back at girls where a woman I mean it, I've I've raised so far two girls and I've helped them go through womanhood and I had that experience too go into womanhood from girlhood and when you're a little girl you're protected you're like in this beautiful pink bubble right and everybody treats you beautifully right. and your parents treat you like a princess and everywhere you go you're you're a delight to everyone's eyes right but in but in mm. a beautiful pure sense in a very decent and moral sense and then when you start to look at womanhood as something that's about to happen to you what you see in the culture is that a woman is treated as a sexual object and so not only and I'm 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 telling you how I feel and you and I'd like to know if this makes sense to you if this is what you No, it does. Yeah, that's absolutely how how I feel. And then on and that's in exchange how I felt growing up. You say, "Okay, I'm going to become a sexual object. I'm also going to have a debilitating, painful, undignified period once a once a month." And they say that childbirth is horrible and that and I'm going to be weighed down with screaming children. Why would I want to be a woman? Is is that how you experience this? Yeah, I in a lot of these the discussion that I would hear from from like young women, especially online and like these feminist circles about things like being a mother, the importance of like building a family was really downplayed. And it was always about like how annoying and screamy children are and how 
they they use phrases like ruin your body for for nothing just mm-hmm. so horrible like it's a total but another thing about that, that they don't bring anything about, good they only take away yeah, from you about what you said about childhood though about female childhood that was that was another thing i often felt like i wasn't taken seriously because i was too cute because i was just a, a girl and no matter if it often felt like because I was cute. I hated the word cute. I hated, I hated being called cute. <laughs> you're you're like awfully nobody, cute, Nobody Chloe. was listening to me or calling me seriously. Uh-huh. And I thought that was what being a girl was all about. Just trivial things, not really being important, always getting in the way. And I wanted to be something better than that. And you know, there is truth to what you say. Women, when we're not being sexualized, we're often very much um, treated in trivial in trivial ways, right? Like we're right. like we only think about things like dress and 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 casual things. Like we're not deep thinkers. I remember when I was in in medical school and working um, in, a, in a big group of other of doctors. You know, we you do rounds, right? You do rounds with a bunch of doctors, and, and right. you're the lowest in the totem pole. And I would ask questions, but like I might I might make a comment or ask a question, but nobody would turn to look at me. And I felt it was because my voice was too high so I started pitching my voice lower <laughs> so so it's actually could, pretty common right that is really common I've talked to other women and they said yes you have to pitch your voice lower you have to ask more <laughs> act more like a guy so that people will um, pay attention to you and so what a strange world we present to our girls right here's the, the here welcome to womanhood here's what womanhood is like it's a uh, and we reflect back to them a very negative experience. And let right. me ask you, what did you hope life would be like as a man, as opposed to entering adulthood as a woman? What were your dreams? Well, I mean, a lot of my idea of what being a man was really like was kind of a caricature based off of how I saw my older male relatives, including my brothers and my dad. And I tried, I tried to mimic them. I tried to emulate them and my peers at school. And on one hand... I really just didn't want to be a woman, and I didn't really see myself as a woman. I often felt like I didn't even look like a girl at times, and I, I didn't really enjoy being feminine for, for a period of time. Mm-hmm. But I thought that transitioning was going to make me happy and whole as a person, that I was going to become my real self as a boy. So there was a hidden self inside of you and you were going to open the doors to that hidden self and that hidden self was masculine. Right. That's kind of how the trans community presents it. And on top of that, the medical community, I mean, the research that I had done on this, including from resources that my healthcare provider actually has, seemed to point at seem to point out transition as the only means of treating gender dysphoria. Do you think if you had been born 15 years earlier? And, and you had that same the same set your makeup your normal natural makeup that you were born with do you think that you that it would have manifested in a different way than it than as gender dysphoria because there is discussion about that right trouble girls girls become troubled around puberty um yeah and they're absolutely. very emotional what do you what do you think might have happened in in another in another lifetime in another time yeah i probably would have just if it weren't this mm-hmm. i probably would have just been like an emo kid or something an emo. <laughs> still very cute <laughs> but dressed in black right <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's very hard. So, so you okay? So you're thir- you're twelve or thirteen, and they start medicalizing you. Were your parents opposed, or were they scared into into going along? Yeah, they actually pushed back on it heavily. They wanted me to wait until I was an adult, but they had their hand forced by the doctors. They were told like there there's not any other option, and, and if you don't do this, then she's going to kill herself. And you know now that 
they were wrong in a sense, or do you do you think that they were right? Uh, do they do they say that no. because they have the, the the numbers behind them, or are they simply trying to scare parents? Yeah, I mean they they cite really faulty studies, like the forty one percent rate, for example. But and, it, I wasn't suicidal until I started transitioning. Oh, and then you went as far as until becoming... I was until I was on these treatments, mm -hmm. and it made it so much worse. Well, you were taking tremendous doses of hormonal. First, the hormonal blocker, Lupron. That's a that's right. a that's a terrible drug, Chloe. People yeah. who have and men who have that. breast cancer and women. I'm sorry, men who have prostate cancer. Women with breast cancer take that drug, and they they have terrible side effects. And right. You, and on top of that, mm -hmm. I was constantly. I was I was on other. Um, I was on psychiatric meds like uh, like uh, both short release and long release medication for ADHD, and uh, they're using Wellbutrin as an antidepressant at. at at one point, even though it actually has like a huge black box warning for use in kids. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. And the, HDH, the ADHD medicines cause emotional fluctuations, which are very violent. Right. So you were on all these drugs and here you are, a little 12-year-old girl trying to navigate this this uh, hormonal nightmare and chemical nightmare that's much worse than puberty, right? I mean, right. it's it's so unnatural. Yeah, and really... Puberty would have been the cure. Puberty was your cure. Amazing. And what, what happened when they added testosterone? What happened to your mental makeup and your emotional makeup when the testosterone started? The blockers were really stressful to be on because uh, the drop in sex hormones um, actually induced a period for me, which people say like it's supposed to be like a stasis where kids can decide whether whether they want to go on to the next puberty or not. Like a pause. But it's not like that. And, and it um, not only does it pretty much induce a state of, of menopause it also causes periods in girls who have already had them and you can't you can't you can't stop you can't stop puberty anyways mm -hmm. so i was i was very lethargic on them i was getting hot flashes and itching all over my body and i it was just really depressing for me i really just wanted to move on to the next treatment which came about a month afterward and i was put on testosterone which that that felt great because I finally, my body was no longer in the absence of sex hormones. And and testosterone is a very, um, it's it's a mood improver. It improves your powerful. mood. It gives you... It's powerful. It's a powerful, powerful hormone. It does, it does fabulous things. <laughs> If you want to improve your mood and have energy and sleep well and... Yeah, it's it's amazing. You know, yeah. you're describing you're you're describing I just went through menopause in the last couple of years and you're describing a very menopause is very difficult when you're all grown up and have a family around you and and understand your body. So I'm I'm very sorry you had to experience that at the tender age of 12. It's very sad. So then you take the testosterone and you have a new flowering of of sex hormone in your body. You have all the wonderful side effects of testosterone, but it's still not working for you. Oh, wait. We then you you had a mastectomy which yeah oh my god i mean i was i was very happy initially while starting on it but there mm -hmm. really nobody told me like there was going to be a honeymoon with these honeymoon period with yeah. all these treatments there is a honeymoon with testosterone for sure yeah and i as soon as i got into high school i actually became more and more distressed mm -hmm. and that was when i was put on wellbutrin and diagnosed with uh with with depression and then after a few years of stopping adhd meds they decided to put me on uh short release medication to treat my declining grades that were mostly caused by my, my depression that was not being properly treated. And now you're and now you're in a situation you're in high school. Um, I've right. put I've many I've been through high school. Many of my I have a lot of kids who've been through high school who are in high school. And that's a very high school is a very socially fraught place. Um, especially for girls, very lots of emotions and lots of problems. But now you're trying to do 
high school um, on all these drugs and you're not yep. presenting, you're presenting as a boy, right? Socially, um, as a yeah. young man. And, and that must come with a million social complications of the way people are interacting with you and reflecting back to you who you are. What was that like? Yeah, I feel like, I do feel like it stunted my development socially and especially as a girl because I was I was socializing as a boy and I was being treated as one because everybody other than a few close friends thought that I was a boy and I was missing out on uh, things like dating and getting into relationships because a lot of my other friends my age were getting into relationships but I was still attracted to boys as somebody who appeared to be a boy. And so my dating, my dating pool was pretty severely limited. Yeah, yeah, of course. And so you were still attracted to boys and you didn't think of yourself as a homosexual man, I don't suppose, at this point. Yeah, I did. You did? Yes. Well, that's very confusing, right? Yeah, it was very difficult to navigate. Oh my gosh. It sounds absolutely... I just can't imagine you doing this at this age, Chloe, and, and such a difficult age. It was a age. nightmare. It, that's such a nightmare. I'm, I can't, I, I'm beyond shocked that we're doing this to so many children in this country, putting them th through these torturous situations that just go on year after year. And then, Even course, as somebody who, <laughs> who's gone through it, it still shocks me. I don't know how we've gotten to this point. Then, ha then something happened to you, which as a physician, I, I can't, it wakes me up at night. And I think to myself, who are the doctors that remove healthy breasts from little girls? Who are these people? And how can we not, how have we not stopped them? What you, yeah. you endured a radical mastectomy. I believe it's radical, right? They take everything. They don't I, leave anything behind. No, I don't think it was a radical mastectomy. Um, they, so I did undergo a double mastectomy, mm -hmm. the incision that they they called it the incision type I got was the most common type, which they call um, double mastectomy with nipple grafts, meaning that they excise into um, the breast tissue. They take it out and uh, they also graft the areolas onto a they call it a more masculine positioning on the chest. Oh, OK. On so, the area of scraped skin. So it's not radical, but they remove the areolas and then regraft them. Yes. Yeah. And okay. they, they take out the breast tissue. And I think they also took out some lymph nodes with that as well mm -hmm. because they uh, they tested uh they tested the tissue for cancer afterward, and I was perfectly healthy. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I mean, what does that feel like now to look back and say the doctors did this to me? A, a surgery of that of that import. It's it's very difficult to put into words just how painful it really is for me. Like I can I can describe my feelings around it and the pain I have and where the the most painful points are, mm -hmm. but. But it's impossible to really it, express, yeah. right? The the trauma that yeah, has been it, done to you and what and it what does is. feel like a part of my sexuality has been taken from me before I was able to fully realize it, and it hurts knowing like I'll never have that function back. Like I'll never have those those nerve endings back. I'll never be able to rescue my kids, and on top of that, I'm having complications with the grafts. No, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, uh, these surgeons, they tell girls when, who are undergoing these um, these evil mastectomies. I call them evil because there's no reason ever to amputate a body part that's not ailing. Um, they right. tell them that you can just get implants later if you change your mind. That's, that's not really true. I mean, you can never no. go back to a real female breast. Right. You can never bring the function back. And on top of that, implants come with their own range of complications. Mm-hmm. Humans aren't just Legos. You can't take parts on and off. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
you didn't you didn't go on with more surgeries um no i did not and i'm sure you you thank god every day <laughs> that you didn't go on um yeah i would have i would have been too young by their standards their their standards which they actually broke their uh, their standards of care and how they treated me yeah because the mastectomy was very early right because this was some right. this was three years ago and i i think they're doing them earlier now but 15 seems very early to me for them yeah i actually know somebody who had a mastectomy at, at 13 oh oh that's at just, the same hospital that's just heartbreaking a little 13 year old girl with a mastectomy right so you didn't go ahead with any more surgeries and and i'm i'm very i'm very glad you didn't um, but people do, very young people. So people, here, let me ask you, I, many people who, def, who, who are against transgender surgeries and medicalization for young people, for, for minors, they say, well, once you're 18, people can make their own decisions. That shocks not me. Not always. That shocks me because I've had 18-year-old children, several, and they're not making good decisions. They're making lots no. of bad decisions no, all day long. Not. And and that's it feels like as a parent, all you're doing is trying to protect them from bad decisions for years. What do you think about that, that once you're an adult, these things are all fine and that that person, an 18-year-old, can choose properly? No. Once you hit 18... You might legally be an adult, but that doesn't mean you know all the answers. Mm-hmm. 18 is still very young, and you don't really, you still don't really have much experience or knowledge having to do with the world. I mean, a lot of people, these, a lot of people don't know that they want to have kids until they're in their late 20s or early 30s. Mm-hmm. And this is a decision that will affect that on top of pretty much every other aspect of your life mm-hmm. and i feel like 18 is just too young to to fully appreciate that i don't know if you want to share this but have do you think you've recovered your fertility you don't have to share that information with us obviously i haven't gotten the fertility test but uh i i started having my my uh my periods again um about two months after I started off testosterone, oh, stopped taking testosterone. I mean, um, but uh, then you must be okay. They, they, it's, I'm it's, very it's, glad it's surprising to hear that. because they've been they've been very regular. When before, I only had about three or four per year because I was so young. And you were you were a little baby. Yet. You were a baby. Right. When all this happened, you were a tiny girl. So thank I thank really God, was. thank God that your fertility um, was preserved. And I'm very very sorry for all those who's fertility has been has been erased i was reading about I mean, a, a young boy who was on lupron and and he said that he didn't he didn't care about his fertility he's 14 this boy of course. he didn't care about his fertility and that if he changes mind later he could adopt um there is <laughs> there's like an abyss of ignorance in that statement which is normal for a 14 year old um and then somebody else who was who was against the this this uh, medicalization said, well, at least this child should have had um, fertility counseling. And I'm thinking, right, fertility counseling at fourteen with a fourteen year old boy. What does that even mean? What's a fourteen year old boy know? Even if you, how can you explain to a fourteen year old boy what that means to give up no your, your sons and daughters? No, I mean, no matter how much you tell a kid, they're not going to. They just can't make an informed decision on this. But I kind of had the same idea, like. When, when, when my endocrinologist told me, like, I might not be able to have kids, I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to have kids because I was 13 when I was, I was starting on these treatments. 
Yeah, but as, at the same time, I had this idea. Imagine I had yourself this a idea. mother. <laughs> yeah, I had this idea that like if I wanted to have kids, then I could just go through like IVF or use a surrogate or something, and that nothing could go wrong with any of that, right? Because mm-hmm. I was naive. I was a kid. Right, and there's a lot of rhetoric out there that acting like children can just you can sort of pull them off trees like like apples, right? When you want a child, yeah. you just reach up and grab one, as though. Yeah as though that's even possible or, or even sh- should be done, right? Like things, children should just be got whenever right. one wants them instead of coming from our bodies. Right. Chloe, we're, we're pretty much out of time. Um, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very honored to have had this conversation with you. I feel that um, the world is a better place because you're in it and because you are so brave and so good to speak so frankly about your troubles. And I know that you're saving lots of lives and lots of futures of young people. Just as parting words of advice um, to to parents, to grandparents, to aunts, to uncles who might be listening to this, to young people who might be listening to this and have friends who are struggling with gender dysphoria or family members, what, what would you say to them? This is never appropriate for kids. It's something that should wait until until adulthood. And that doesn't necessarily mean when that doesn't necessarily mean the moment that you turn 18. This is something this is a decision that takes a long time to um to make a decision on. And there's no guarantee that it's going to treat your gender dysphoria. And chances are that if you do experience gender dysphoria, it might be caused by underlying issues and traumas that you have that need to be treated first. And an issue that I noticed with a lot of these dysphoric kids, um, they're not really active in in their communities. They don't really partake in like school clubs or extracurriculars or sports or anything. And they're very lonely. They don't really have that sense of community around them, especially with their peers. And so they turn to the internet to fill, to fill that. When really they should be they should be working together with their peers. They should be they should be mingling with their peers and working together on something mm-hmm. to give them a sense of purpose. That's often what these kids are lacking, and they need to they need to be they need to know the truth because these doctors and this community that promotes this treatment as a one size fits all thing it's it's dangerous. It comes with a host of complications. And these doctors are often not informing their patients of the full picture of things. Well, there you have it. Thank you, Chloe Cole. And uh, thank you for joining us and telling us, um, telling us the truth of your, of your story. And thank you for your bravery. Thank you so much. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm joined now by my dear friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Ashley McGuire. So much fun to have you on the show, Ashley. Welcome back. Hey, Gracie. It's always so great to talk with you. 
So I was away for the last week on my family vacation. Thank God I needed it very badly. And uh, we had some beautiful family time. But there's been lots of stuff brewing here in the United States while I was gone. And you have had your finger on the pulse, Ashley, of an FBI-associated scandal. Well, you know, Gracie, you, you're probably not the only person who's missed this story. And that's because um, pretty much nobody's been covering it. And I actually, with, with the exception of a handful of conservative and religious outlets, uh, this story has totally fly, flown under the radar, but it has been getting more and more attention. So the story is that the FBI, a, a memo leaked from the FBI, much of which has later been redacted, but you can actually find the redacted memo online. And the memo was written by an agent out of the Richmond office, basically saying that um, they need to run this operation in people's churches, recruiting people's priests, um, recruiting people at church to essentially spy on people who go to uh, traditional Catholic masses. Traditional traditional meaning the Latin mass or people or yeah. just or just very conservative parishes. Well, that's what's interesting. So in the memo it explicitly talks about traditionalist Latin mass going, which they define as radical traditionalist Catholics, a, a, a new terminology that I'd never heard before. Radical? Um, so radi- radi- radically uh, mantilla-wearing Catholics? Like we wear the <laughs> women who wear their mantillas radically? Like what are they concerned about? Well, so, I mean, to quote directly from the memo, it says racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists in radical traditionalist Catholic ideology. And, and the memo says that they need new avenues, this is directly quoting, quote, new avenues for source and tripwire development through outreach to traditionalist Catholic parishes and the development of sources with the placement and access to report on, end quote, um, these people. So, yeah, so people who go to traditional Latin mass are apparently one step away from doing who knows what kinds of violent activities. I mean, it's that like where you're laughing um, because it's so utterly ridiculous. But, um, but, but Ashley, uh, before we get into the, the, the horrible violations of our, of, our, of our liberties as Americans, this the way this is, I mean, this is done in communist countries like China and Cuba, where you people are afraid to go to church because sitting next to you will be a, an informant. Um, Absolutely. What? No, and this, but you, you, you quoted racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists. Let's break that down a little. First of all, violent, violent. Have I missed a, a, a rash of um, traditional Catholic uh, terrorist attacks? <laughs> Did I somehow miss that? No, probably. Um, maybe people are a little confused because what there has been is a spate of hundreds, and I'm not exaggerating when I say hundreds, of attacks on Catholic churches perpetrated against Catholic churches by actual violent extremists who basically are upset about what the Catholic Church holds and believes, Um, specifically abortion, but a number of other issues as well. Um, Right, so so Catholic Catholic, uh, Catholic, um, churches being uh, defaced with graffiti, uh, statues being pushed over, there's been... um, Several instances that I know of, just offhand, of uh, fires being set, uh, arson. Yeah, I know a that church our... two miles, a church two miles from my house 
was set on fire. It caused tens of thousands of dollars worth of damage. Um, this was last year. They desecrated the tabernacle. They knocked down and broke statues, and they tore down the stations of, cro- of the cross. This was in the wake of the decision in Dobbs. And that's one of hundreds of attacks. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely an issue with violent extremists in this country. Uh, The issue is that they are targeting Catholic churches. They're targeting crisis pregnancy centers, including like the one that you work at, where my understanding is there was a death threat written on the wall. Almost a year ago today, um, this, this coming week. So that's so it's almost like well it's I hate that word it's it's gotten so trite Orwellian right it's Orwellian that the people who are being targeted for violent extremist acts are the ones who are being investigated investigated by the FBI. Guess who they cite as a source of that label in the FBI memo? Who the southern the Southern Poverty Law Center. So this is the same group. I mean, they're sort of this self-crowned crowned themselves the entity in charge of like policing hate groups, quote-unquote, extremist groups. Um, And basically what they do is go around and put targets on conservative organizations that uh, don't toe the line on what they believe about abortion, gender ideology, things like that. But no, I I mean, the memo is absolutely ideological. It, It explicitly references the Catholic Church's beliefs on abortion, and it cites the Southern Poverty Law Center when it when it comes to where they came up with the definition of radical um, Catholic traditionalists. So is, is this could this be sort of a broadening of that idea of words are violence? I mean, possibly, but at least what I read in the memo didn't even you know wax philosophical like that. This memo seemed to actually suggest that the agent who wrote it thinks that. Um, certain types of Catholics are a danger. And an actual physical danger. Like they're gonna take they're gonna take up arms and go shoot up a I'm trying to think of a target for them, which it's hard for me to think about them that way. Yeah, and it's just what's so frightening about it is well, A, there's there's a couple things that are frightening about it. First of all, that uh, according to Congressman Jim Jordan who has run hearings investigating uh, this memo, which to be fair, was disavowed by um, Merrick Garland, and but you know only after only after it got leaked. But before that, it appears to, according to his sources that he cites in his subpoena um, and whistleblowers, it was distributed to field officers and field offices all across the country. A um, B was approved by much senior, much more senior intelligence officers uh, who should have, you know, rebuked this completely out of line agent and thrown the thing in the trash, fired him. Um, and B was actually proposed to be expanded to include not traditional uh, Latin mass churches and masses, but what they call mainline Catholic churches. Um, and and senior official, senior diocesan officials. So it, it just shows the kind of slippery slope that you start, you know, flying down when you have the government picking and choosing what forms of Catholicism, Christianity, or insert name of religion or belief here are acceptable and which aren't. That it very quickly turns into something where, you know, the the net that ensnares people becomes much wider. And, you know, let's not forget that last year or two years ago at this time, 
that the group that was under, quote, investigation by the FBI were parents who were showing up at school board meetings wondering why the heck it was 18 months into the pandemic and public schools had been get forked over millions upon millions of dollars worth of funding to supposedly reopen and they were still closed because the teachers unions um, were acting like mafia figures instead of um, teachers and holding public schools hostage. So these parents were upset and school board meetings were obviously tense situations and they were labeled domestic terrorists and investigated by the FBI. So the FBI has basically been weaponized is being weaponized against American citizens who don't toe the line, who, who don't walk in, march in lockstep behind whatever it is that the administration and their thugs are doing. And right now that, you know, that happens to be the Catholic church and it's really scary. And, you know, as you point out, this is the stuff of communist totalitarian countries. Um, and you don't have to be a Catholic who prefers um, the old Latin mass to be concerned about what its implications are for a free society. It's a terrifying thought that the, those tactics that are used in places like China and Cuba of infiltrating um, civic associations like, like churches and, and temples and, and, and house churches, people who meet together for, for prayer services. That's what the government does in those places. They, they, they find out that someone's having a, a prayer service or, or they know about a mass that's going on and they will send um, an undercover person to, to monitor everything that's going on. And I've talked to Cubans, especially, and yeah, no Chinese, but I've talked to Cuban, Cuban friends of mine who explained um, that it doesn't just have a chilling effect on religious expression and religious, your relig ability to practice your religion, but it has a terrible um, effect on the trust between um, human beings. In other words, that you everywhere you go, um, and and in the place where you should have the most trust and the most and the and the most ability to sort of unburden your unburden your soul, and find companionship, and which is what we find in our religious observances, and find community. That's where you're most afraid of finding traitors, and. Um, having your words recorded and used against you and somebody making, you know, career moves on your back. So I, I find this uh, memo extremely scary and, and it has a lot to do with the secularization of our society and the way that here in the United States, um, we used to have, we used to have a, a, a deep respect for a pluralistic, for our pluralistic society that everybody, you know, you, you imagine that scenario, and it's true. Like in my little town, there's a corner where there is um, a, temp a Jewish temple, a Presbyterian church, an Episcopalian church, and a Catholic church, and then there's another church. There's five churches in one corner. Um, and this, this is just a typical American, a little American community, right? And all of us coexist um, happily, and also the people who don't practice anything. And that's, that's the beauty of America. And I don't, I can respect my Presbyterian neighbor and my atheist neighbor, and they respect me and, and my, our Jewish neighbors who go to temple. The other day it was, um, it was uh, Passover, and the Jewish rabbi came because he knew my husband, he knows my husband used to be Jewish, and he brought us matzah for Passover, a beautiful box of like uh, gift matzah. It was gorgeous. Um, and this, this, 
that the FBI has done flies in the face of that beautiful American pluralistic tradition where all of us live together in peace and respect each other and can see the brotherhood and the sisterhood of other co-religionists, uh, relig other religionists. Um, and don't we don't have to share all the same beliefs, but we can respect them. Don't you think that this just flies in the face of that and destroys the essence of who we are as Americans? Definitely. And, you know, <clears throat> in an article that I'm uh, working on about this, I point out that the irony is that it's these houses of worship um, that, you know, if, if the government really is concerned about violent extremism, the place where people come together peacefully despite differences are houses of worship. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, whether it's, and it, I was struck by this even before I really keyed into what was happening or what had happened with the FBI in these hearings. Um, the other day when I was at mass and, you know, sitting behind the row of wheelchairs at the front, um, you know, with the kind of wriggling kids in the back thinking in what other place anywhere in civil society am I simultaneously with rich people, poor people, people of all different races, people of all different political beliefs, disabled people, elderly, the youngest children, pregnant. It's just that. And, and I know that other houses of worship synagogues, are the same. And yeah, it's our. The, the, it's, it's really a beautiful part of our of our of our lives. It's it's the peaceful part. It's the community part. It's the loving part, right? Right. And these is, are the places and the experiences that actually quell extremism. Mm -hmm, exactly. Because it's where you are united in a higher belief and in a calling for the you know toward the common good with people that you're different from. And, and also, that has always actually there's just no I can't think of any um, events that link traditional Catholics to violence. I, I can't think of a single one. Am I missing something that you know about? No, right? No. And I mean, that's a little bit. It's both besides the point and the point. I mean, it's, you know, both the idea that as you point out, the people who are wearing mantillas and, you know, doing Gregorian chants are going to suddenly pick up AK-47s is so bizarrely off-key that it's bizarre. The women have the um, women have too many children to be worried about <laughs> exactly. or to be able to go get their, drug, their gun license. They're way too busy. And the men are supporting right. all those babies. And that's really beautiful. But it's also... It's also besides the point because the real point is that they're being targeted because they're the people who are most likely to adhere to the church's teachings um, that people don't like. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's why they were being targeted in this quote unquote investigation. Now, I'm glad that the FBI is being called out, but more people need to be aware of this, that this was something real that happened. Um, it wasn't just, you know, I think the, there's an attempt to spin it as, oh, just some rogue agent in some office. No, it wasn't. Not according to the subpoena. Um, this was widely known about and I think is part of a broader concerning pattern of 
um, an entity that's meant to uh, protect our rights is being weaponized against our rights. Well, thank you, Ashley, for giving us all that information and for joining me today. Thanks, Crazy. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. Last week, Jesus gave us the parable of the sower, seed, and soil to indicate to us how he wants us to receive his word and his work within us. We know from our basic knowledge of farming what normally occurs once a seed has been implanted in good soil. It starts to grow and eventually produces fruit, and those fruit likewise contain within many seeds that can be planted elsewhere. Spiritually, the same thing is supposed to happen. With a hat trick of different images in this Sunday's Gospel, Jesus describes that transition from a fertile disciple into a fruitful apostle, in which we begin to share what we ourselves have received. His words contain three important lessons about how the kingdom of God grows. Insofar as each of us has been called and chosen by God through the church to enter into and expand his kingdom, these three parables are deeply relevant to who we are and what God calls us to do. In one parable, Jesus tells us that the church, like a mustard seed, starts small, but will grow to be huge. In a second, he adds that the members of the church are meant to function in the world like yeast does in bread. We're supposed to make everything rise. In the third, he states that the the church's growth doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's also an enemy in the field sowing weeds, trying to wreck God's harvest. In other words, to destroy you, me, and those we know and love. These three parables go together and are meant to guide us at every moment of the church's life. The, church, the first parable is that the church begins like a tiny mustard seed. From the small seed of Christ implanted by God in Mary's womb to the calling of just a few disciples and apostles filled with the Holy Spirit, the church was born and grew into the largest of shrubs, which countless people throughout the ages, including whole nations, have been able to come and find shelter in her branches. That tree continues to live and we're branches on Jesus the vine. The branches of the church extend in areas of great sunshine and great darkness, of nourishing rain and desiccating heat. With all of us taking our roots in that one event, that one piece of soil on Calvary, that one seed of Jesus who fell to the ground three times and died but rose again like a plant in springtime, giving life to all of us. This lesson of the mustard seed recurs throughout church history. So many religious orders and apostolates that the Lord has raised up to help the church began small, often with just one saint without any or very few human resources. But over the course of sufferings and patience, they grew to be enormous. So many parishes began with just a handful of poor, committed families. But over the course of years and decades, with commitment, generosity, time, and the help of the Lord, grew to be quite large. Even if some of us are living in an area in which the church is shrinking, the Lord wants to bring good out of it so that we can all experience anew the full and exhilarating meaning of this parable through beginning again, beginning smaller, like the new mustard seed planted from the tall tree. I'm recording this from Spain, a land of extraordinary saints, but in many parts of the country the church is struggling. 
earlier this week after the celebration of the feast of Our Lady Mount Carmel at the place where St. Teresa of Avila is buried, I met a relatively young couple at, ma at lunch, Victor and Margarita, the husband a member of the Spanish Parliament, the wife a member of the European Parliament, who have nine children. I spoke to them with gratitude for their generosity in raising up a large family for God. And the wife explicitly referenced the parable of the mustard seed, saying full of faithful realism that the revival of the church and civilization has to begin somewhere. Why can't it begin, she asked, with one couple, with one family that seeks to correspond with hope and courage to the vocation God gives them? Good question. The second image Jesus gives us today to describe the growth of his kingdom in the church is that of yeast in dough. The dough is the whole world, and we Christians are called to be leaven. One Christian in a neighborhood, one truly Catholic family on a street, one faithful Catholic in a workplace or school should be enough over time to transform that neighborhood, street, school, and workplace. The true Christian is the opposite of a bad apple. We know that one bad apple can quickly corrode a whole bushel. Christians are supposed to be the good apples. We're supposed to be the yeast that can make the whole world rise to God. Just think about the saints like Teresa of Avila or Teresa of Calcutta, Pio Pietralcina, John Paul, Francis, Dominic, Francis Cabrini, and so many others, whose lives have changed those of almost everyone around them. God wants and can give us the grace to have that type of impact in the circles we inhabit. But we need to grasp that this growth doesn't happen in a vacuum. Jesus' third parable concerns the fact that while the Lord wants this development to be occurring, there's an enemy trying to sabotage his plans. Jesus identifies the enemy as the devil. While the Lord is trying to sow good seed, children of the kingdom, the devil is sowing those who are beholden to him and his lies, whom Jesus calls the children of the evil one who cause others to sin and do evil. They are the anti-yeast who rather than lifting everyone up toward God, drag people down so that they live without faith or supernatural vision and behave morally sometimes like animals or proud devils. These weeds certainly exist in our world and in the field of our culture is becoming increasingly populated with them. From those pushing the destruction of the unborn and the redefinition of marriage, family, what it means to be a boy or a girl, to websites pushing pornography, to states selling pot, to politicians seeking to infringe on religious freedom, to celebrities promoting irresponsible, materialistic, and hedonistic lifestyles. Some of these weeds are sadly even in the church, featuring Catholics who are more attuned to the fallen spirit of the age than to the Holy Spirit. There are two lessons Jesus gives us in this third parable. The first is that the good seed and the bad seed exist together and grow up together. The weeds and the wheat Jesus refers to in the Middle East are indistinguishable during the early phases of growth. Not even expert farmers can tell the difference between them. When they grow enough to be distinguished, their roots are so intertwined that you can't separate the weeds without ripping out the wheat by the roots as well. So you need to let them grow. Take all of them out together and then separate them on sifting tables, lest the wheat be contaminated by the toxic fruit of the weeds. By this parable, Jesus is saying that the same patience and prudence have to be exercised with the proclamation of the kingdom. We really can't tell the difference between the good and the bad seed, especially early in life. We can't judge by present appearances. We need to wait until the end when Jesus himself will judge. Jesus' second is telling us that we shouldn't be overly surprised or discouraged when we find bad seed in the church. Those who, for example, live contrary to the gospel. But Jesus teaches that while such weeds can provide frustration for the Christian farmer, rather than complaining about them, 
they ultimately can't stop the growth of the wheat. He tells us that we need simply to be focused on growing the good seed until harvest time, to keep living our faith with zeal until the end, to spend far more time on growth than on trying to eradicate bad seed. At Mass this Sunday, Jesus wants to plant the seed of his word through our ears and to our hearts, as well as to plant himself, the mustard seed, into our mouths and digestive tracts through Holy Communion. Jesus wouldn't be calling us to this mission to be good seed, mustard trees, and leaven, unless he were prepared to give us everything we need to fulfill it. He gives us that miracle grow fertilizer every Mass, where he tells us anew, whoever has ears to hear ought to hear. God bless you. Thank you, Father. To learn more about Father Landry, check out his website. It's called catholicpreaching.com. And make sure to catch his writings at EWTN's National Catholic Register, where he's a regular contributor. I wanted to take a moment to tell you about something that we just experienced in our family that was very beautiful. We took in, I wouldn't say a friend, but an acquaintance two and a half, almost three years ago. Her name was Guadalupe. She needed a place to stay for a while, and she ended up staying for a long time and became very sick and died in our home. It wasn't exactly our responsibility because she wasn't family, but it turned out to be an amazing fountain of grace for our whole family. And that's the way it happens, right? Uh, Things that are very, very difficult come with tremendous rewards when we face them squarely and and do it for the right reasons and and because we know that God accompanies us. I wrote a piece about this, which tells the whole story mostly of Guadalupe, who was an awesome person, very poor, but very honest, extremely hardworking, uh, full of faith, a daughter of the church, a daughter of God, who found herself completely alone at the end of her life and we were granted the, the privilege of being her family at the end, and it's called Welcoming the Stranger. I think you might find it, might, might find it a, a good read. And, and again, it's, it's mostly a story about her and her hard life. It's really a story about possibilities of how we can go through life encountering people in need and not even realizing it, or encountering them and, and embracing their need as though it were our own or the, or the need of one of our family members. So give that uh, a look in the National Catholic Register website, Welcoming the Stranger. A big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that our conversations have consequences and that those consequences are fabulous for you. Go with our prayers. 